And our Old Testament reading is taken from Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 1 through 12. Hear the word of God. Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak, and let the earth hear the words of my mouth. May my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, like gentle rain upon the tender grass, and like showers upon the herb. For I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. They have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. Do you thus repay the Lord, you foolish and senseless people? Is not he your father who created you, who made you and established you? Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father and he will show you, your elders, and they will tell you. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob his allotted heritage. He found him in a desert land and in the howling waste of the wilderness. He encircled him, he cared for him, he kept him as the apple of his eye, like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions. The Lord alone guided him. No foreign god was with him. Then turning to the New Testament, Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 through 15. Again, hear the word of God. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh. By the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. More. One of the great drivers in our lives is our quest for more. Perhaps when you're young, you receive recognition for uh, your singing voice or for your athletic talent, and people praise you, and you like that, and you want to experience it again. So you work at it. Uh, You take voice lessons. You work out. You practice. You become better and better at it so that you keep receiving that sort of positive feedback because you really want to be more, to do more, 
and to experience more. Every single person is wired for more. By the way, that gives an important warning for those of us who are older. We ought to be really careful about what we praise our young people for. Uh, I think this is particularly a problem when it comes to young girls and young women, where us older folk, and this is not just out there in the culture, this happens in the church as well, we want to say something nice and encouraging to a young girl or a young woman, and so we praise her for being pretty. And she wants more. But it can create a very difficult cycle in her life, because after all, who knows what it means to be pretty enough? And how much can you do for that? And it can distort what that young woman is pursuing in her life as though this is somehow the most important thing to chase after. Uh, To a lesser but to a very real extent, young boys tend to receive a disproportionate amount of praise for how well they perform in sports. And therefore, we who are older ought to take it to heart to actually step back and consider what are we praising people for? Is this really the most important thing for them to be pursuing? And we ought to praise people instead for their kindness, for their godliness, for how they help other people. See, the inborn desire for more is going to help determine what those young people are going to pursue but so are your words. Your encouraging words to people can make a great deal of difference to them, and it may actually change the course of their life. Now, I confess that's an aside, but what we're dealing with here is the fact that all of us are wired to want more of certain things. And that's true of your spiritual life as well. Uh, If you became a believer in Jesus Christ as a teenager or later in life, it's very likely that when you first came to faith, you experienced a profound sense of joy and a profound sense of now you have what you should have. But after you walked with the Lord for a little while, you started realizing that you have apprehended so little of who God is and so little of his ways, and you want to know him better. You want to know his ways better. You want to reflect that in the way that you live. And therefore, you want more. That's actually all for good. Wanting more is not bad, but it leaves us vulnerable. The problem is that there are a lot of people on the fringes of Christianity who are peddling more, but what they're actually offering to you is a path that leads away from Jesus Christ. That's what was going on in Colossae. The young church at Colossae is being challenged by a strange syncretistic mix of Jewish mysticism and pagan philosophy. Christians in Colossae, in various ways, were being told that they had made a really good start with Jesus Christ. But if they wanted more, they had to go on to something else. They needed to move on to pursuing ecstatic visions. Or perhaps they needed to follow some sort of rigorous asceticism which denied the world and its pleasures. That spiritual maturity would come from rejecting things 
that the Lord calls good. Or perhaps they would find more, the more that they were seeking, by speculating about and even worshiping angels. Or perhaps they would find more by moving from being a Gentile Christian to becoming a devout Jew in all their religious practices. But they would get circumcised. Yes, they had made a good start with Jesus Christ. He was the bridge that brought them into Judaism. But what they would become really excited about is keeping the old covenant ceremonial law as rigorously as they could. Do you understand the temptation? See, on the surface, they all sound very different. But what they're all doing is holding out more on the grounds that you made a good start with Jesus Christ. But if you want more, you've got to move on to someone or something else. Now, there are a number of competing theories about exactly who these people were who are causing so much trouble in the Colossian church. Um, It isn't as though we've uncovered um, a, a sect with name tags and a confession of faith that matches up exactly with what Paul is talking about in this letter. And that really shouldn't surprise us. The nature of syncretism is it takes a little bit here, a little bit there, and it blends them together as the individual or as the leaders see fit. So we're perhaps on better historical grounds instead of thinking that there's one clearly defined set of troublemakers in Colossae to realize that there's various types of troublemakers in Colossae and Paul was addressing the main problems that they're bringing up but he's actually addressing those problems in such a way that what he's teaching us could be applied to all manner of other problems of anybody who's encouraging us to get more apart from Jesus Christ. So that's actually really helpful to us because it is unlikely in your Christian walk that you are going to be tempted by legalistic Jewish mystics. Right? That, that's not who's going to do this. But in fact, you are going to encounter people You are going to encounter trends that say, oh, if you really want to be spiritual, well, then you need to learn, like the Pharisees, to fast twice a week. Well, they won't say it that way, but there'll be various things they're offering you as the real key to moving from a class B Christian to a first class, class A Christian. And what Paul is telling us in Colossae will answer all those temptations as well. Uh, Not surprisingly... The Apostle Paul wants us to fully grasp how desperately wrong it is to think we can get more by moving beyond Jesus Christ. We're going to look at this evening's passage under four main headings. First, when we believe the gospel, we received Christ himself. Second, in Christ, the whole fullness of the deity dwells bodily. Third, the Holy Spirit has vitally and permanently united us with Jesus Christ. And fourth, we never move beyond the cross and resurrection. Let me give those to you again. First, when we believe the gospel, we received Christ himself. Second, in Christ, the whole fullness of the deity dwells bodily. Third, 
the Holy Spirit has vitally and permanently united us with Jesus Christ. And fourth, we never move beyond the cross and resurrection. We begin with the glorious and life-changing truth that when we receive Jesus Christ, when we believe the gospel, we did not simply receive something from him, we received the person of Christ himself. Look at verses 6 and 7 with me. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. The troublemakers are saying, you, you made a really good start by trusting Jesus Christ, but now you need to move on to something else. But Paul says, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. See, the Lord does intend that you will grow in the knowledge of him, that you will grow in grace, that you will grow in both faith and faithfulness. He really does want you to grow, and he is calling you to do that very thing. Yet as Paul is making clear, we do this by knowing and loving Christ more fully rather than by starting with Jesus Christ and then moving on to something else. Our new birth is in Christ, but so is our growth in the spiritual life. If you think you can move on from Jesus to something better, you do not yet know fully who Jesus is. There is nothing better There is no one better. There simply isn't anything else better that you could move on to. Now, the fact that we are never to move on from Christ doesn't mean that there isn't more for us. Paul uses three powerful participles to describe our life in Christ. We are rooted, we are built up, and we are established. Yes, that's a mixed metaphor. Paul likes mixed metaphors. But but this mixed metaphor, as you pull it together, creates a beautiful picture of the Christian life. First, we are rooted in him. A growing faith in Jesus Christ is like a tree that is putting down deeper and deeper roots by streams of living water. The growing root system provides stability to our lives so that we are not blown around by every wind of doctrine. As you come to know Christ better, you become more stable. You become able to withstand the storms of this life and the challenges from troublemakers like those in Colossae. And our rootedness leads to us being able to bear more fruit. Second, we are built up in him. This is true both individually and corporately. Now, scholars have rightly pointed out the language Paul's using here of built up really does point us toward the temple, but the fact that we are living stones in God's new temple, and the whole temple corporately is being built up. But I want to suggest that this image works individually as well. Um, you are not like a, a peg in a bookshelf, right? A peg that's stuck in a bookshelf never grows. It never becomes anything other than a peg. In fact, over time, it wears out. You are a living stone in God's temple. And as you are rooted in him, you are also built up in him. 
As you come to know Christ better, uh, you don't receive a different Christ, but you receive a fuller knowledge of him, and you experience him with, with greater fullness, and you become more. That's very important to remember. The sovereign God who loves you is already working on you so that you will know more, become more, and experience more. And all of this takes place because you are in a vital union with Christ himself. Third, we are established in him. Uh, the idea of this, uh, this word here is that in Christ, our faith is made firm. It won't move. Of course, that's pr- precisely the problem that Paul's addressing in Colossae, it is the risk that these saints are going to be pushed around. Paul is saying, you know Christ better, you grow in him, you are therefore going to be established in him, immovable in the face of the challenges of this world. Now here is one of those places where grammar teaches us something important. I know as your pastor, I probably like grammar more than you do. But this is actually a very helpful and important part of grammar. Rooted, built up, and established are all in the passive voice. That is, these are things that God is doing for you and in you. They are not your own achievement. Now, the fact that Paul is teaching us these things does mean that we should apply ourselves. We should be seeking to be built up. We should be seeking to be rooted. We should be seeking to be established. But nevertheless, they are not our work. You'll notice, by the way, that Paul doesn't say thankfulness in this passage. He says with thanksgiving, right? So don't take the passive uh, participles to mean you're not supposed to be active. You are to be active in your Christian life. But the strength and the growth of your life comes from God. In different contexts, Paul talks about the evangelistic ministry this way, right? I, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. That's not only true out there, that's true in your own life. God is calling you to be active, but your growth, your rootedness, and the fact that you are established are his work and his gift for you. Very fine Lutheran scholar, Paul Detterding, puts it nicely. Paul's instruction that his readers be firm in the faith is pertinent in view of the heresy enticing them which could cause them to be uncertain or even erring rather than stable in belief. Yet, not only is the verb established in the passive voice, so is the verb taught, which in this context implies that the firmness of faith is not a quality or a virtue that they themselves can produce. Rather, Christian faith is created in them by God, And perseverance with firm faith, likewise, is the result of the activity of the one who works in them and through the means of grace, the word and the sacraments. So you want to take this passive voice to heart. It's encouraging. God is at work in you. And that's actually precisely what I naturally think of when I read this passage. The words of the Apostle Paul to the Philippians. Yes, be active. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Why? 
Because God is at work in you both to will and to do. Having been saved by grace through faith, we are called to be active in our Christian walk, and we are called to pursue our own sanctification. Yet the good news is, is that the God... But the God who calls us to do these things is at work within us, both to give us these holy desires and to bring them to pass. And here's the question Paul wants you to keep asking throughout this passage. Why in the world would you turn away from the salvation that you have in the triune God in Jesus Christ to go after something else as though that something else is going to bring you more? A part of the answer is that there are people who are trying to take us captive and to lure us away from Christ alone. That's what's going on in Colossae, but it goes on in your world too. There are people who want to take you captive to lure you away from Christ alone. Look at verses 8 through 10 with me. Paul writes, See to it, that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. There are two very helpful word plays in this passage. Um, ancient Jewish rabbis loved, as part of their teaching, because it helped people remember things, to use these word plays. When the Apostle Paul became a bondservant of Jesus Christ, he did not leave that behind in his teaching. His letters often contain these sorts of word plays. The first word play stands behind the translation to take you captive. The Greek word is syllogogon. Well, you don't know Greek, but you can tell that syllogogon and synagogon sound almost identical. Paul's making that connection. He's saying, you know, those, those Jewish people that are on the fringes of the church who are saying you've got to go into the synagogue with them, they're really not luring you to the synagogue. They're trying to bring you into captivity, right? Don't do it. And then on a much more positive wordplay, one that comes over pretty well in English, Paul says this, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Fullness in Christ, you are filled in him. According to the Apostle Paul, everything that God is, is fully and permanently united to the man, Christ Jesus. Let me say that again. According to the Apostle Paul, everything that God is, is fully and permanently united to the man, Christ Jesus. Jesus possesses the fullness of deity, and we have been filled in him when we were united with him through faith. Those among the troublers of the Colossian church who are embracing 
Neoplatonic philosophy, um, they would have really recoiled at this idea, right? The Neoplatonic philosophy said matter is bad. Very least, it's, it kind of hinders you, right? Matter is bad, but Paul is driving a stake through that belief. See, after all, everything God created is good, including your bodies. Your physical body is part of what God declared very good all the way back in Genesis 1. And here he's saying, not only did God declare that is good for you, it is so good and part of what you are as an image bearer of God that the second person trinity, very God of very God, has fully united with this man so that he is the fullness of deity dwelling in him. Nevertheless, I suspect that Paul has an additional reason for using the pointed word bodily. Paul wants to make clear that Jesus Christ is a specific person. That that is, when he's talking about the Christ, he's not talking about some vague Christ spirit of emanations. Sometimes in Greek philosophy, they'd actually use the word logos, right, which we get in John chapter 1 that way. There are these emanations from deity, as it were, going out. And Paul wants to make clear, this is not some vague, vague abstract idea. This is a person. There, there's, a, there's a man that if you were in his presence, you could touch him. In that person dwells the fullness of deity in bodily form. Uh, it is in this Christ and in him alone that we ourselves are filled with all spiritual riches, And so once again, you ask the question, if the fullness of God dwells in him and we are full in him, why in the world would we look for more in any other place than in Jesus Christ? So first, when we believe the gospel, we received Christ himself. And second, in Christ, the whole fullness of the deity dwells bodily. Now we come to a rich section, which I've tried to sum up by observing that the Holy Spirit has vitally and permanently united us with Jesus Christ. Um, This passage reminds me, I actually mentioned this in Sunday school today, uh, that when you read the New Testament epistles, particularly those of Paul, uh, Paul's letters make a great deal more out of baptism than we commonly do in the North American Protestant Church. I think part of the reason why Paul makes a big deal about baptism here is that the sacraments are intended to give God's people assurance. If you go back and read why God gave the sign of circumcision to Abraham, it was for assurance. And that's actually true of all the sacraments. Assurance of God's love for us, assurance that we are secure in that love. And assurance was something that the Colossians very much needed right now. Look at verses 11 and 12 with me. Verses 11 and 12. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God 
who raised him from the dead. So when we look at the Jewish legalistic side of those who were troubling the Colossian church, one of the things they were saying is this, you made a good start with Jesus, in fact, he's the bridge for you into Judaism. But if you want to be a first-class member of the people of God, you got to go all the way. You need to be circumcised if you're a man. You need to keep the ceremonial laws. Jesus was a good start, but that's what really matters. Now, to us, that wouldn't really be a temptation, I trust. If someone came to you today and tried to convince you of that, there would be no allure. But I want to remind you that the Colossians did not have a New Testament. And when you read the Old Testament, it's quite clear. God gives circumcision as a sacramental gift, as a sign of grace to Abraham. And the Lord also makes clear that circumcision was absolutely necessary. That if a, a person that was born into a Jewish household was not circumcised, they would be cut off from his people. And furthermore, when it came to Gentiles, he's writing primarily to Gentiles here, in the Old Testament, unless they were circumcised, they could not participate in Passover or Pentecost or any of the sacrifices. It would have been very easy for these Gentile Christians who know that that's God's word to think, yes, we do need to be circumcised. And maybe we don't simply need to be circumcised in order to get more. We might need to be circumcised just to hold on to what we already have. So you have to understand that this is a very, very real temptation. But Paul responds, hold your horses. Stop and consider that the sacrament of circumcision is a sign. It is not the reality. See, negatively, circumcision was a mark in the man's flesh that said, by your flesh you will not bring in the kingdom of God. But positively, it pointed forward to the coming Christ who would be cut off on the cross. Well, the reality is come. And if you are united with Christ, you have that reality. You were cut off with him. You were circumcised, not with the sign, but with the reality. Since you have the reality, it would be terribly wrong to move from the reality back to the sign. So we, we sometimes say, and there's a place for this, that baptism replaces circumcision. And that does work on some levels. But I want you to realize it doesn't replace circumcision on a one-to-one thing as though they mean exactly the same thing. And, and baptism is just a different way of doing it. Rather, baptism in particular signifies your union with Christ. And so you've got to think of it this way. Through baptism and faith, you've been united vitally with Jesus Christ. And therefore, you receive the reality that circumcision pointed forward to in Christ. And there's no longer a need to go back to the sign that has already been fulfilled. In fact, you have both died with Christ and and been raised with him. To move from the reality back to the sign in pursuit of more is therefore, quite frankly, foolish. It is important to see that in verse 12, Paul moves from baptism to our faith. He writes, You were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. 
See, biblically, baptism and faith, they go together. There's never retention in the Bible. Sometimes there's retention the way we talk about them, but there's never retention in the Bible. Uh, if an unbaptized person is born again, that person must get baptized. If they don't, they are in open rebellion against God. You know, I'm sometimes asked by people, what do you call a, a, a non-baptized Christian? And I know this bothers people, but I always say the same thing. I call them a non-Christian. I'm not saying that God hasn't worked in their heart. I can't know that. There's simply no such thing in the New Testament as an unbaptized Christian. If you are born again and you come to faith, you receive the outward sign and seal of the covenant, which is you are baptized. Correspondingly, when we baptize our covenant youth, the very fact that God's name is being put on them is a call for them to embrace the living God by faith and to trust the covenant promises, which is that God provides salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone. In fact, the baptismal sign and seal can be particularly helpful for us as we seek assurance before God. Um, one of the problems with simply going back to your faith, which is not wrong. But one of the problems is if you're struggling with assurance, you could be struggling with, did I really believe? Uh, it, it's not a tangible thing. But baptism is material and tangible. You can say with Luther, I have been baptized, and then look to the one who baptized you and realize that he who promised is faithful. So your baptism should help you be assured of God's promise for you. Paul has therefore given us three rock-solid reasons for not moving away from Jesus Christ, imagining that we can move beyond him in a search for more. First, when we believe the gospel, we receive Christ himself. Second, in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and we are filled in him. Third, the Holy Spirit has vitally and permanently united us with Jesus Christ. And so Paul concludes with a powerful and direct encouragement. We never move beyond the cross and resurrection. Look at verses 13 and 14 with me. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. It's almost as if Paul was saying, yes, by all means, remember your baptism. You might want to remember something else as well. Think back to what you were, who you were, and what you were like before you trusted in Jesus Christ. Back then, you were filthy in your sin. You were hopeless, helpless, and without God in this world. Completely dead in your sins. Beloved, that is not a pretty picture until we remember two of the most precious words in all of Scripture. But God... You and I were dead in our sins. We had no claim on life. But God, out of his sheer goodness and mercy, has acted on our behalf. 
You were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. That's what you were. But God has made you alive together with him. How did the Lord do this? He has forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set it aside, nailing it to the cross. With that in mind, why would anyone imagine that they could move beyond the crucified and resurrected Christ and by moving on, end up with something that was more? Then Paul adds, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Now, some of the troublemakers in Colossae were obsessed with angels. They speculated about angels. They tried to have worship with the angels so they could be more spiritual. And some of them were even worshiping the angels the best that we can tell. Paul is saying, don't you understand that all the holy angels worship Jesus and all the wicked angels have been crushed under his foot in principle already. Jesus has triumphed over them, including Satan, through his death and resurrection. In the bag of Satan's tricks, very close to the top of the bag, is terrifying people through the thought of death. He's going to convince you that if you follow Jesus, it's going to lead to the loss of your life. But once you know Christ... And you know that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Not all, but almost all the sting of that threat has been taken away. That is part of how Christ triumphs through the cross over Satan. He's disarming him as as he were. Satan has a second trick in his bag. That trick is to try to convince people that they're so wicked so sinful that even if they're forgiven, they can't possibly be useful for the sake of the kingdom of God. Uh, It doesn't just take Satan to do that. You could do that to yourself. You consider the record of your sins and you think, wow, God could never use someone like me. I'll tell you a story. This is a story told about Martin Luther having a dream. Now, I want to say it's a story about Martin Luther. When someone's as famous as Martin Luther, stories get made up around them, and you can't know whether or not it's true. Maybe it's true, maybe it's not, but either way, the story is an excellent illustration of the point. Satan presents Luther in his dream with a scroll of all his sins, and he says, how could a holy God possibly accept someone who has sinned like this? Luther replied, is that all you got? So Satan brings out two more scrolls of sins. And Luther says, you've actually missed quite a few there. But the most important thing you've missed is this. Almighty God has already written over those scrolls. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. Beloved, that's true of you. The blood of Jesus Christ has cleansed you from all sin. 
This is the power of the cross. Towards us, the cross makes us whiter than snow. It cleanses us both from sin's guilt and its power. Towards God, the cross of Jesus Christ reveals how a perfectly holy God can be both just and the justifier of the one who believes in Jesus Christ. And towards Satan and the whole demonic host, the cross of Christ cries out, but the Son of God has openly triumphed over them, and their complete and final defeat is as certain as it has already taken place. All of this leaves us with just one conclusion. In our quest for more, we must seek to know and to have more of Christ. As we sometimes sing, more love to thee, O Christ, more love to thee. Hear thou the prayer I make on bended knee. This is my earnest plea. More love, O Christ, to thee. More love to thee. More love to thee. Amen.